0: you're listening to commute the podcast congratulations you'll be smarter when you get there
1: what up welcome in to commute the podcast i'm dave and i'm jay three topics 20 minutes ish you'll be smarter when you get there
2: On this edition of Commute. In 2007, MTV decided to try an experiment and locked a rock band away in a bubble for a month so they could record an album. By many measures, it was a disaster, but was the experiment also ahead of its time? This Friday,
1: LeBron James tackles the role of leading man in the Space Jam reboot. But after 25 years, the original Space Jam is still somehow a cultural phenomenon.
2: Every year, Americans spend over a billion dollars on fireworks, most of it over the course of one week, and most of it in roadside tents and stands. But where do all those fireworks tents come from? I mean things have changed so much. I remember
1: just a couple years ago, it was
2: probably five, six, seven years ago,
1: everybody had that uncle that went to Tennessee. You know, there was always that, hey, my uncle went to Tennessee. He got the illegal stuff. They don't allow these things up here. Oh, they don't allow that in your state. All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it.
2: So Dave, the creative process, uh, it varies from person to person. For you, what's it like? Yeah, I've always said
1: that I'm an idea guy. I can come up with 50 ideas, 49 of them may be horrible. But one of them will work. But I need a little room. I need a little space, a little privacy to make that happen.
2: Well, you and I were reminded of this story uh, just a few days ago, actually. We were hanging out and we were talking and all of a sudden it just kind of clicked. Yeah, deep. I'll
1: tell you what, how it came about was we were listening. We were just hanging out. Our families were together. And a Spotify playlist that I had was on and a song by the band Cartel came on and cartel was really famous
2: in the mid 2000s the story is really interesting of how they got famous By the time we reached the year of 2007, MTV had a strange yet successful handful of reality shows from Room Raiders, in which contestants went through a stranger's room to decide whether or not they'd want to go on a date with them, to Friend Zone, which forced best friends to confess their love for each other, to Viva La Bam, which followed the escapades of skater Bam Margera, and All of this culminated in a forgotten reality show that resembled something like the Truman Show, a show called Band in a Bubble. And the premise was this an upcoming pop punk band called Cartel would be trapped in a giant bubble for exactly one month while they wrote and recorded their sophomore album under live 24-7 surveillance. Cartel was big uh, at the time that they entered the bubble, but the record label was hoping to make them bigger. But before we talk about Cartel, let's go back to where the idea came from. So eight years before this, the head of the Australian record label Valve Records had an idea. Trap a band called Regurgitator in a biosphere to record a record and ask questions on how the creative process can be influenced by isolation. But the idea wasn't quite ready. But as society began to become more obsessive with creative transparency, this idea was revisited. And Regurgitator entered the bubble in 2004 to record their sixth full length record in a self sustaining habitat. And the show, Band in a Bubble, centered around the album's creation. Which was a huge success in Australia. And Regurgitator's album, Mishmash, inspired an all access marketing approach that made the album a smash hit. So, by all standards, it was a success. So, enter the American band Cartel. By 2006, like you said, they were riding a wave of success on the heels of their incredibly popular first album, Chroma, led by their single honestly. The band was slated to become the next big thing in music uh, when they received a call that MTV wanted to cast them in an American version of Band in a Bubble, an opportunity that, while unique, presumably also carried some risk. Uh, Band frontman Will Pugh said it this way. He said, for our generation, MTV was huge. Our other major concern, though, was that the show was going to become like the real world. We're not a band full of drama. We poke fun at each other. and We have a good." time, but you're not going to find us fighting. And, you know, Dave, the fear proved to be appropriate. The show, which premiered in May of 2007, it was pretty over the top. Cameras sponsored by Dr. Pepper were installed all throughout the bubble facility, and fans could access live streams online of the band at any time. You could log in at three in the morning and just see the members of the band sleeping or working on their record or going to the bathroom or whatever. And uh, this, you got to keep in mind, though, that this was well ahead of Facebook and Instagram Live, where people were going, live all the time today. The bubble was set up in Hudson River Park's Pier 54 and it was created using 55,000 pounds of steel and fireproof fiberglass. The issues began when Cartel's expectations of a music documentary were not really met by MTV's expectations for a dramatic reality show. As the days went on, MTV brought more and more staged segments into the bubble to up the drama level. Uh, Cameos from musicians such as Wyclef Jean, Farm Animals, and even an entire cheerleading squad made their way into the bubble, much to the chagrin of the band. And things finally reached a breaking point when MTV provided several alcoholic drinks to the band one evening, only to bring in a personal trainer and force them to exercise at 7 a.m. the next morning, (laughs) and then subsequently shut off internet in the house so the band couldn't watch the show, causing the bass player to have a breakdown and roam through the bubble, aggressively pointing all the cameras in different directions. So, David, on June 12, 2007, Cartel emerged from the bubble. They played a live set on MTV and they hit the road to promote their new album. Unfortunately for the band the show did little to catapult them to fame as the record label expected it would and their sophomore self-titled album did not do nearly as well as their first and they were actually dropped by their record label. The band bounced back and they recorded two more albums, they continued to tour and drummer Kevin Sanders says it like this. He says, "I loved being a part of something so ahead of its time. You're talking about 24-hour live streaming 10 years ago. We're just now going live on Instagram or Facebook. We were doing that, just not with phones.
1: Jay, I think what gets lost in all of this is it was the Dr. Pepper bubble. So my main memory of this is that Dr. Pepper plastered its logo all over everything to do
2: with the bubble. Dr. Pepper was aggressively marketed. All the band members were like drinking Dr. Pepper in front of the cameras. I mean, (laughs) it was like
1: and I will say I used to love Dr. Pepper.
2: I, I wasn't going to bring it up. I was just going to let you. I was going to let you. I haven't had it, it in years, but I do have a friend who still loves Dr. Pepper. He drinks six
1: or seven a day. That's how much he loves Dr. Pepper. And he quite typically has um, kidney stones the size of marbles. So Jay, this Friday, July 16th, something interesting is going to happen. Something that, while it seems inevitable in a certain way, also feels completely wrong to me as a child of the 1990s. Jay, we are days away from the release of a standalone sequel to the 1996 smash hit Space Jam. I was eight years old when the original Space Jam came out, and I watched it so many times that my VHS copy of Space Jam actually stopped working. Surely Space Jam was on your television at some point.
2: Yeah, I love Space Jam. It has staying power now. You know, I teach in a high school. Kids are still wearing uh, jerseys uh, from that movie now. Kids that weren't even born in the 90s. So I did hear you say that you, f- you felt like it was wrong. I- I- I'm interested to hear more about that because I don't have any problem with this new Space Jam movie. So I have a feeling we're going to have a disagreement here. Well, I-, I think that I probably side with the old
1: Space Jam's director in thinking that the new Space Jam really has no place to exist. But believe it or not, Jay, the original Space Jam is still the highest grossing basketball film of all time, bringing in over $250 million worldwide. But while after 25 years, we are now days away from the next Space Jam movie, this time starring current LA Lakers star LeBron James instead of the iconic NBA legend Michael Jordan, the original movie represents a unique and fascinating partnership formed between arguably the most famous athlete ever and the Looney Tunes. And Jay, the result was bigger than anyone could have ever imagined. Back in 96. So the original Space Jam in a nutshell. Space Jam is the fictional account of what happened when Michael Jordan retired between the 1993 and 1995 seasons. Away from the game of basketball, he gets recruited by the Looney Tunes, led by Bugs Bunny, to help them win a basketball game against an evil group of aliens who want to capture the Looney Tunes and force them to work at a space theme park. The aliens, catching wind of the Looney Tunes recruitment of Air Jordan, get some talent for themselves, stealing the basketball skills of 1990s NBA stars Charles Barkley, Larry Johnson, Sean Bradley, Patrick Ewing, and Muggsy Bogues. In 2016, the director of Space Jam, Joe Pitka, told Entertainment Weekly that he has no idea how the original movie was ever successful. I thought it was a very silly idea, said Pitka, I don't know how it could become a movie, but somehow it did. Pitka J. was uniquely qualified to be the man for the job when Space Jam was announced because he had already had experience working with both Michael Jordan and Bugs Bunny. The two worked together on a 1992 Nike commercial that was directed by Pitka, and the commercial was a smashing success for Nike, helping convince Warner Brothers Animation that a movie like Space Jam could actually win the hearts and wallets of people young and old from around the world. Actually creating the movie, though, had massive challenges. For starters, most actors just weren't interested in acting alongside cartoon characters in the early 90s. Having only been done on a large scale once before the 1988 Robert Zemeckis classic film Who Framed Roger Rabbit, a film, by the way, Jay, that Zemeckis has been rumored as saying was the hardest project he ever did. The project was confusing. and In 1993, it felt difficult at best and career suicide at worst. Having a superstar like Michael Jordan attached was difficult, too. With no acting experience outside of commercials, the film company tried to make Jordan's life as easy as possible. They actually built him an on-set facility with a full basketball court so that he could get ready for the upcoming season, his comeback in 1995. Gee, the movie didn't just work in the end, though. It really worked. Some film industry insiders even suggest its total reach is among the most impactful of any film in cinematic history. Aside from the $250 million made at the box office, the film produced a soundtrack that went platinum six times, sold over $6 billion in merchandise, including the launch of the much-maligned Tweety Bird nightgown, and reignited the Looney Tunes to a new generation of fans. But will the new iteration starring LeBron James work? Well, for his money, original director Joe Pitka has been quoted many times suggesting that it can't. I think it's ridiculous to try and make a different movie out of it, he told Entertainment Weekly in 2016. I just can't see it. I can't imagine how it could be what that film was. Not that Space Jam is a great movie, but it had something that touched that period of time because of who those athletes were, and that doesn't exist anymore. I've worked with LeBron, I've worked with Steph Curry, and as good of a player as LeBron is, and as good of a player as Steph Curry is, they're not Michael Jordan. We will never see another player like him. He was a transcendent figure, and much like Muhammad Ali, he was beyond his sport,
2: and those guys just aren't. So I've seen a lot of hate online for the new Space Jam movie from a lot of people who haven't seen it, first of all. And I think the quote that you just said really sums up my theory as to why. It's not that people hate the new movie, it's that it is... It is sort of a cover to have the LeBron-Michael Jordan debate. People are hating on the new Space Jam movie because they think that for some reason by making a new Space Jam movie that you're putting LeBron on the same level as Michael Jordan. Well,
1: regardless of what most people think, sequel talk has been around for decades. In fact, some rumored potential sequels through the years include Spy Jam with Jackie Chan, Race Jam with Jeff Gordon, a golf-centered film, probably called Golf Jam with Tiger Woods, and Skate Jam with Tony
2: Hawk. It's uh, it's my life's mission now from this moment on to get that Jeff Gordon movie made. So Dave, we're a little bit past the 4th of July, and uh, this is when we as a nation shoot off a lot of fireworks. Are you a fireworks guy? The
1: older I get, the less I like fireworks, which is, it makes me feel very much like the get-off-my-lawn kind of guy. But what shocks me, and I know that you're going to get into this, what shocks me is how many firework tents exist in every single town in America.
2: Yeah. I realized that I had crossed a threshold this year. Uh, You know, I used to shoot off fireworks with friends in high school and stuff like that. And then this year there were people in my neighborhood shooting them off at like 10 o'clock at night on July 6th. And My kids were not happy about it, and I was not happy about it. And you know, I realized that there had been a sea change in the way that I saw fireworks, and that now I sort of see them as a nuisance, whereas before I thought they were kind of cool. You mentioned tents, and uh, we started talking about it, and I just got really interested in finding out like where do these come from? Have Americans actually spend around one point five billion dollars a year on fireworks, and most of that is clustered around the Fourth of July? So. The business is definitely profitable, but it's also sort of a gold rush. You know, you make the vast majority of your profits in a very small window. And while the profits are high, you also have to deal with the local and state laws that deal with firework distribution, which can vary not just from state to state, but also from city to city. You know, many cities limit the number of stands that can be present at one time and limit the dates in which the products can even be sold, which is why you often see pop-up tents and stands as opposed to physical stores and not all stands are independent operations though some larger companies like phantom fireworks which is uh, the largest distributor of fireworks in the united states they have standalone stores but they also set up pop-up shops throughout the country to meet demand during the fourth of july and entrepreneurs who choose to participate can contact a distributor to sell their products Purchase a package and signage, sell what they can, and then pocket the profit. Typically, fireworks selling windows only run for one week. So a downpour or a scorching hot day during that holy week, it could cost your stand 15 to 20% of your yearly profits in just one day of bad luck then you probably have to pay a fee to rent the location alongside the road to catch traffic. You have to avoid getting shut down for violating one of the many laws regarding selling fireworks. And when all is said and done, you have a risky yet potentially very profitable adventure Uh, Many people who run fireworks stands report marking their products up thousands of percent of what they paid for the inventory. And ultimately, though, Dave, it boils down to the window. Most people who run a fireworks stand don't do it to make their yearly income. Most people do it to rake in a few thousand dollars in the summer when the demand is high.
1: Well, you know, Jay, you and I can say whatever we want about the fireworks industry, but we've never worked in it. Thankfully, my longest friend, my best friend Dave, actually sold fireworks at one of these tents for a summer, and I caught up with him a couple days ago in preparation for this segment to get an expert's opinion. I wanted an expert to weigh in on what it's actually like to work for one of these companies. So Dave tell us, what is it actually like running a fireworks tent?
0: They essentially drop off a tractor trailer, a shipping container full of fireworks. They they drop it off and they set up a tent and that's it. And you have two weeks to figure everything out and you have a portage on that they give you and they clean it out once uh, during a two weeks duration <laughs> and it's 90 degrees and you sit in the sun and people come in and ask you what every single firework does and you have no information and so you make answers up as the two weeks go on and you just, and you just hope to God that people want to buy fireworks.
1: So I'm assuming you would uh, definitely do this again
0: No, I would never do this again the thing about the Porta john is, is 100% true. They clean it out once during your two-week period. And so you keep getting gradually more disgusted with the situation because you're having to use the same toilet over and over. And so you know it's your own filth that you're like surrounded by. So we were so excited to have our toilet emptied out halfway through. And we were like, this is going to be so much better inside. And before we had a chance to use our toilet, a bum had stopped by and asked if he could use it. And to just keep it simple, he completely destroyed the outhouse and didn't use toilet paper. And so my first trip to the bathroom after it had been cleaned, the place is
1: already a total wreck. And that's it. Jay, hopefully we don't hear any fireworks uh, throughout the rest of July, but I fear that we
2: might. I might call the local law enforcement next time. I'm going to turn into now that Now, that's guy. when
1: you really know you're old, when you try to get a neighbor arrested for shooting out fireworks. Now that's when you are officially an old man. I'm, I'm mad, but I'm not a snitch. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Don't forget, it helps us out a lot. Please rate, subscribe, and review to the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And check us out on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can always get a hold of us at our website, CommuteThePodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Salmons For j and I, I'm Dave Traub. Have a great week. We will see you next Monday.